Oh, hello again, folk, and welcome back to the Fearless Fire podcast. This is episode 25, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, about fuel and fuel policy. My name's Grant, I'm one of your hosts, and I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, James. How are you, James? Yeah, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. I'm very well, thank you. Should be a good one, so let's get into it. So in the last episode, just briefly, we talked about the aircraft performance and limitations, and now we're going to have a discussion about the motion lotion, the fuel, and, uh, and the fuel policy. The, before we uh, sort of discuss like fuel policy as such, we probably need to first talk about the different types of fuel. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, uh, because there are uh, lots of different types of fuel, but basically in aviation, there's two types of fuel. And one is uh, used for piston engines, and it's pretty much similar to the fuel you'd put in your car. And the other is jet fuel. It's also known as kerosene. And this is similar to the fuel that would go in like a heavy goods vehicle or a truck or a lorry um, that you see driving around. So the fuel in your car is known as different names around the planet. Here in New Zealand, uh, it's just known simply as referred to as petrol. In Europe, it can be called benzene or gasoline. And the US, it's just simply referred to as gasoline. Uh, all country, all of these countries uh, generally have two types of uh, fuel for your vehicle, known as leaded or unleaded. And the fuel in a heavy goods vehicle, or HGV, seems to be universal throughout the planet, uh, simply referred to as diesel in most countries. Yes, yeah, so light aircraft, piston engine aircraft, they run on avgas or aviation gasoline. And like we said, that's similar to the fuel in your car. Whilst jet aircraft, they run on jet fuel, or in what you'll see written on most fuel tankers. If, you're, if they're using a fuel tanker to refuel an aircraft on the tarmac, it's got a big label on it called Jet A1, uh, another lesser name known as kerosene. And like we said, jet fuel, it has, it has similar properties to diesel, which is what heavy goods vehicles run on. So the basic difference here between the fuel in your car and avgas in a light airplane and that of diesel or jet fuel is the volatility of the fuel. Gasoline and avgas is, is a lighter, less dense, and more flammable fuel than diesel and jet fuel. So we could say that gasoline and avgas is more volatile than diesel or jet fuel. Yeah, so basically, if you're silly enough to throw a lighted match into a puddle of car fuel, it would make a huge whooshing noise and probably burn your eyebrows off and other bits of hair, etc. But if you did the same with a puddle of diesel or jet fuel, the match would likely be extinguished as soon as it hit the puddle of fuel. But don't try this at all. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so the fuel that powers your car or a light piston engine is very volatile, and the fuel that powers a truck or a jet turbine engine is a lot less volatile. Yeah, that's right. So at this stage, you may ask yourself why you use jet fuel or kerosene when we could use uh, gasoline. Especially considering, like Avgas, it has a low freezing point of around minus 58 degrees centigrade or minus 72 Fahrenheit, whilst Jet A1 will freeze a little bit warmer or freeze around minus 47 uh, degrees centigrade or minus 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, jet fuel has a higher flash point than gasoline, and the flash point is the lowest temperature at which a liquid such as a fuel will give off a vapor near its surface. And it's this vapour that can easily become ignitable and ignite the mixture. So the lower flash point, the easier it is to ignite. Primarily, jet fuel has 
higher octane rating, meaning for a given amount of fuel, you get more power compared to that of gasoline. And it has a much higher flash point than the gasoline, which simply means it needs a higher flash point to ignite than gasoline. Hence, that lit match would likely extinguish if it was dropped into a puddle of Jet A1. Finally, there is less refining of jet fuel compared to avgas, and as a result, it's cheaper than avgas. However, aviation jet fuel must still be of a high quality, and if it fails any of these purity tests, then it just can't go into an aircraft. Most fuel tanks and jet transport aircraft are in the wing, uh, and generally the, the wing is just basically a massive fuel tank. There's also uh, fuel in the fuel tanks between the wings under the cabin, and we can generally call this the centre tank, such as we do on the 777. And then some larger aircraft generally, such as the A380, also have uh, an additional fuel storage area in the rear of the aircraft using the horizontal stabiliser as a tank. Not only does that provide additional storage, it also helps keep the aircraft in an optimal trim position. So firstly, jet fuel, it's, it's not as heavy as water, so it's going to have a lower density. Yeah, that's right. And a one litre of water weighs one kilogram, but a litre of Jet A1 weighs around 0.8 of a kilogram more. So I'm not going to convert this to pounds or gallons, but you get the idea. So roughly Jet A is around 20% lighter than water. Yep. And uh, also jet uh, fuel has a lot of additives in it and in order to give it unique properties due to the environment in which it must operate, like it must lubricate. It's got to have antifungal growth, anti-freezing properties, etc. So aircraft refueling on the most majority of jet aircraft is from a tanker or underground piping system fed via hoses at high pressure, around 40 psi, into the aircraft uh, fuel tanks. And then these tanks have a vent, generally near the edge of the wingtips, which allow the air uh, in the tank to escape as it's being refueled. Yeah, and if you couldn't let the air escape, you'd probably destroy the wing. But you may, this venting may, it may cause the odd smell of fumes around the aircraft. And some airports actually require a fire truck to be in attendance when refueling and passenger boarding is taking place. But sometimes you may get the odd wafting smell of uh, kerosene as it's being pumped into the wings and it's being and the air is escaping out of the tanks does smell good let's make an air freshener yeah that's a nice one the raw the raw jet a one doesn't smell good but it smells it smells quite nice when it's burning <laughs> so anyway enough about the uh, fuel properties let's get on to how we calculate how much fuel uh, we need to legally operate a flight from your departure airport to the destination you have chosen. Yeah, um, we do this thing called flight planning, which in essence means a calculation of how much fuel we need to safely and legally operate a flight. Now, I'll talk about flight planning in a bit more depth in a few episodes time, as it's not as simple as going in a straight line from A to B. And there are a number of considerations in flight planning. Obviously, the fuel calculation being the most important. But to understand how much fuel we need, we must also take into account air traffic control. We must consider the choice of route, the winds and the altitude we would fly at. Back in the old days of flying, the uh, wind forecasts, navigation aids and air traffic control systems weren't very accurate. So we'd need to carry quite a bit more fuel uh, called a contingency amount in order to cater for those inaccuracies. 
But as wind forecasting, navigation aids, and air traffic control have gone on to become a lot more accurate, we've significantly reduced the contingency fuel uh, we have to carry. That's right. And suffice to say, an optimised flight plan, it's spat out by a computer and we as pilots uh, look over it. It has fuel calculations based on a given payload or what we call the zero fuel weight or zero fuel mass. Those calculations, how are they done? Okay, so basically we have a fixed amount of uh, taxi out fuel, and then we have the fuel burn plan from departure to the destination. And to account for uncertainties such as en route weather, we'll have an additional percentage of the en route fuel added into the calculation. And this is generally between 3 to 5% of the expected en route departure to destination fuel burn. Then we have to add more fuel in the calculation for a missed approach at your destination and flying to an alternate airport. And on top of that, we then have another 30 minutes of flying reserve added into the equation as well. So if we add up the taxi fuel, the fuel from departure to destination, the contingency fuel, fuel to an alternate and 30 minutes of fuel reserve, now this is the legal minimum amount of fuel we need to have on the aircraft before we depart. The flight planning system might also add an extra fuel because there's some things could be like weather at destinations not so good. So it might add um, some additional extra fuel into cater for this. And there are other factors that may require more fuel, but we'll talk about this in another episode. So as pilots, we can add more fuel based on our experience and past history of a particular flight or a certain destination we're going to. Of course, however. Most companies just really want you to carry the minimum legal fuel, as if we put more fuel in than legally required to, I should say, uh, we actually are going to burn more fuel to carry that extra fuel. Yeah, that's right. So I'll give you an example of that. Say for a 15-hour flight on the 777, if we put an extra one tonne of weight on the aircraft, whether that be fuel or payload, we'll burn around half a tonne of fuel just to carry that. So if we put an extra 1,000 kilograms of fuel on the aircraft, then would burn 500 kilograms of that fuel alone before we arrived at our destination. So hence, most if not all companies don't want us to carry extra fuel. However, if we do, we justify it and we're therefore allowed to do so at our discretion. Basically, Sum it up. The fuel plan is just like this. You've got your plan fuel for taxi out to the uh, runway, fuel from departure to destination, a contingency factor added as a percentage of that fuel, fuel to carry out a missed approach at the destination and fly to an alternate airport, perform the approach there, and then hold for another 30 minutes on top of the diversion fuel. Yeah. If you held for the 30 minutes on top of that diversion fuel, you'd technically run out of fuel. So at that stage. So yeah, that 30 minutes extra definitely want to be on the ground before that's up. That's basically our fuel policy, the very basic fuel policy. Most companies follow something similar, but you can see there's a lot of fat built into it and a lot of contingencies and thought has gone into it. Yeah. So just moving on from that, let's just have a quick discussion about fuel dumping or fuel jettison. She may have seen on YouTube a couple of times because they always go viral. The news media love to post videos of it. But anyway, so there may be a requirement to reduce the fuel load quickly in order to get the aircraft weight down to its legal max landing mass, which we've discussed in previous episodes. 
So what are some examples of a requirement to dump or jettison the fuel? Yeah, there's numerous reasons why we might need to dump uh, or our fuel overboard, and the primary one being a medical emergency whereby a passenger requires urgent medical treatment on the ground. Another could be a technical fault that requires us to return to the departure airport, and there's some other scenarios as well. On the 777, we can jettison at a rate of between 1,400 to 2,500 kgs per minute, or that's about three to 5,000 pounds per minute of fuel. And this fuel comes out of a pipe towards the wingtips at the back of the wing. It looks pretty cool when it happens, but obviously not cool for any airline company or the environment. And we ideally need to be at 6,000 feet or higher to dump this fuel as it then allows for it to vaporize and dissipate before it gets to the ground. But just uh, from there, what happens if you are getting low on fuel, like throughout the flight? Yeah, our flight plan, it has waypoints on it with the expected fuel burn uh, we should have, and we regularly check these throughout the flight. If for some random reason our fuel burn was a lot higher than predicted, then a worst-case scenario, we would divert to an airport en route and refuel. So has this even ever happened to you, even in the earlier stages of your career? No, no, never happened. Not on en route. The, the contingency actually takes that into account. But uh, yeah, and I don't know of any of my colleagues I know that's happened to either. So now let's just say that the weather, you're getting to your destination, the weather's a lot worse than the forecast, which is causing uh, like a backlog in arrivals. For example, fog which always slows the amount of arrivals allowed into an airport significantly. Uh, what sort of, what happens in that scenario? Yeah, okay, then um, we get an expected approach time, which will be given to us by air traffic control. Now, just say I've calculated that my expected approach time will be after the time that I'll have enough fuel to divert to my alternate. Once I reach this time with regard to the amount of fuel I have left to divert to the ultimate and land with that 30 minutes in the tank, I'll inform ATC beforehand and I'll start my diversion at that point. It's essential that we land with at least 30 minutes flying fuel in the tanks. If ATC messed me around and it's possible that I could land with less than 30 minutes in my tanks, I'll declare a minimum fuel state. And this informs ATC that given the fact I'm committed to land at a specific aerodrome based on the clearance, I may end up landing with less than plan reserve fuel. So by informing ATC that I'm critical on fuel, I start getting some higher priorities. And didn't this happen when you were flying us once back home, like early morning one time? Yeah, and, we, uh, yeah, we held for a long, long time. Yeah, we did hold. But coming back to the flight planning, there was fog forecast back at a home base. And we had loaded the plane up with, I think it was nearly two hours holding fuel. Uh, before we even left. So we had all this fear, and I think we held for us a one hour, 36 minutes. But I'd been given an expected approach time, so that wasn't an issue. Of course, after that two-hour period was up, I'd already had plans to divert if I needed to. But that comes back to the flight plan. Remember, I said right at the start, the uh, company can put extra fuel on or we can put extra fuel on. In this case, uh, fog was forecast, and it did happen. So we carried the extra fuel and uh, was still able to arrive at our destination, albeit about an hour and a half later than scheduled. Um, and coming back to that, the nuclear option, if they were still getting messed around, we've declared a, a, a low fuel state. We just put a mayday call out and 
This will be used when we've calculated that we will be going into that 30 minutes of fuel to land at the nearest aerodrome. And basically, by putting a mayday call out, I can do what I want that I need to do as required to get the aircraft safely on the ground. And uh, it won't get messed around by anyone then. Very rare that it happens. But uh, once you put a mayday call out, you can do really what you want, anything you need to do. Um, Yeah, doesn't happen too often because we follow this process with regard to planning ahead and diversion, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not really a big issue. Anyway, so in summary, the fuel on aircraft has numerous properties and the flight planning, in essence, taking into account many variables in order to create the flight plan, which states how much fuel an aircraft must carry on said route. There is a lot of additional fuel added in the form of contingency fuel, an alternate airport and reserve fuel as well. Yeah, there's also a process which the pilots and the air traffic controllers follow that in the unlikely event of a low fuel situation, the flight gets a priority to get on the ground quickly. And speaking of getting on the ground quickly, we can also jettison fuel to reduce the aircraft weight quickly if we need to land in a hurry. Sounds good. The next episode, episode 26, we're going to be discussing terrain on Mother Earth. The Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, or EGPWS, and the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, or TCAS. Do you have anything to add there? No, that's all pretty good. Thank you very much, everyone, uh, for listening to this podcast. It's a short one. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something out of it, and we look forward to chatting to you on the next one. All right. See you later, everyone. Have a good day.